compelling themes in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are looking at the theme of class in Avatar Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra. Mm-hmm. So to get us started, we have a quote, a great quote, <laughs> by Azula to Longfang. And this comes in the episode The Crossroads of Destiny, which is at the end of book two. I can see your whole history in your eyes. You were born with nothing, so you've had to struggle and connive and claw your way to power. But true power, the divine right to rule, is something you're born with. The truth is, they don't know which one of us is going to be sitting down on that throne, and which of us is going to be bowing down. But I know, and you know. Oh, Azula. (laughs) Most Azula thing ever. Right. I mean, so by saying great quote, not a true quote, but a, a... a great picture of how she views things and probably how a lot of people who, you know, believe in nobility or royal families, bloodline, that sort of stuff, view things. Yeah, absolutely. Because the simple fact of the matter is that the Daili are waiting, that she has shown that she's a contender for their loyalty, but not that she deserves it outright. She has no divine right. And... Long Feng is really just making the calculation of, is it worth risking my life for this? Mm-hmm. And for her, it's the fact that she is powerful, which is true, that she's able to claim divine right, claim that she was chosen for this, rather than that she is actively using her power to maintain that power. Well, yeah, it's, it's interesting because she views it as, I was born for this like Mm -hmm. i was born a royal unlike i was born to lead and other people specifically were born to follow Mm -hmm. but i'm not sure how much the daily it's based off of any idea of that versus she's scary she's super powerful and we don't know if we want to go up against her Mm -hmm. or she has so much power and people are so scared of her it's better to just stay with her and we'll be able to maintain our power versus losing it if they follow yeah yeah i appreciate this whole sub story because it's about different antagonists negotiating their own power all trying to maintain or build up their power and what that means when they are yeah they have to come to a head and see who will actually have power over the other totally and before i think from both azula and zuko you had random little times where they would be like peasants you know Mm -hmm. in this super classist royal way but here you actually get to see it explicitly laid out what she thinks absolutely yeah well should we get into the rest of our discussion sounds good okay what character did you bring i wanted to talk about toph beifong that's a good character to choose yeah Uh, Not only just because she's a great character, but because I think that she is one of the characters who most dynamically engages with class dynamics. Okay. We're introduced to her as the daughter of one of the wealthiest families in the Earth Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And she has dresses. She has etiquette. She has finery. She has a last name. A last name. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Whereas when we see her in the Earthbending Tournament... And then certainly when she is with Aang and the rest of the gang, we see her completely shed those refinements, (laughs) shed those aspects of class. 
And so she picks her nose. She <laughs> gives people nicknames. She's aggressive and insulting and, you know. She has really dirty feet because she prefers to walk around without shoes. Exactly. Which totally makes sense. Totally. Um, <laughs> Would not have been allowed to do that at home. No, no. And, you know, she's, she's probably the most vulgar character in this television <laughs> show <laughs> for kids. Yes. Uh, but it's interesting because being in her elite home where she's being protected and she's not only hiding her earthbending, but she's hiding all of that aspects of her personality. She is leaning into being the daughter that her parents expect her to be and having these high class, diminutive, frankly, personality traits. Mm-hmm. So when she escapes that, when she joins the Avatar, she experiences a kind of true freedom that previously she probably only experienced in the tournaments where she could be the blind bandit. And now she could do this and just be herself all the time and, and almost goes too far into a kind of individualistic nature where... Wild child. Exactly. Didn't they call her that at one point? <laughs> and, and, you know, her first fight, I think, is with Katara mm -hmm. over how she says that she can take care of herself and she doesn't need to take care of anyone else and no one should be taking care of her. And now that she has broken free from the constraints put on her by the expectations of being a high society daughter with a disability, she's able to, she, she goes so far in the opposite direction, which I think is, is very, very interesting. So yeah, I, I think that it's interesting seeing a character who comes from this high-class status and who's still able to utilize that high-class status even though they don't make it there every day. When they're in Ba Sing Se and they need to sneak into the ball or the, the banquet or whatever it is they're sneaking into, she's the one who's able to understand this is how you dress, this is how you stand, this is how mm -hmm. you speak. She's the one who's able to get them into the actual banquet. And I appreciate that they didn't just let that aspect of her personality go, mm -hmm. but that it remains part of, of who she is even if it's not how she chooses to act. Totally, yeah. And still within like her skill set. Yeah, so I, I just, I think that she's she's interesting in that way where she's a character from that, that class who isn't in many ways defined by, she is not defined by these things that she sheds. Yeah, the, that is interesting. And it's interesting too that she gets to experience this freedom mm -hmm. when she leaves, but also still misses her parents and the freedom isn't exactly complete because her parents have so many resources mm. that they send the boulder and that uh, earthbending teacher after her which is not something other families could have done mm. in in the same circumstance it's only because they are so wealthy that they can have such a far reach to get to her even when she leaves. Yeah, that's a really good point. There's no one in the water tribe who could have done the same. Exactly. And it's in the water tribe for They Katara. didn't know where their dad was. Yeah, they, exactly. You know, yeah. So yeah, that's, that's very, very interesting. I'm not going to say what happens, but this is also something that is engaged with in the comics mm. um, in really interesting ways. Oh, that's is cool. How she navigates those relationships and her relationship to that kind of status post- the Hundred Year War, and maybe after you read them, and we can have a kind of special episode on those because I think there's mm -hmm. some, some really interesting, interesting things to chew on. Yeah, cool. Look forward to it. Yeah, but what plot did you bring? So I wanted to talk about Ba Sing Se as the capital of the Earth Kingdom, but also its own kind of city, but big enough to be a country, mm -hmm. right? A city state. Sure, and it's it's a kingdom, 
obviously. And kind of the structure of it is there's two main walls, which is like the outer wall. Um, and within the outer wall is a large expanse of farmland. That's where Lake Lagai is and things like that, which is interesting because obviously who has to travel every day out to those fields mm -hmm. to work them? <laughs> yes, <laughs> they're the ones who are going to have to go outside the inner wall, which is where the rest of the city is. Mm hmm. But still, within the city, there's this system of walls dividing the populace based off of social status. So there's the lower ring, which is the home to the lowest socioeconomic classes of Vasingse society, which, of course, is the majority of the city's population. Mm. And as displaced refugees come in from the war, they're obviously sent to the most crowded, the poorest sector of society there in the lower ring. And then there's the middle ring, which houses the middle class and, you know, has shops and restaurants and things like that. And then, of course, finally, there's the upper ring, uh, which has the richest population, including the military, the government officials, and the royal palaces there as well. And they're protected against, quote-unquote, criminal activity and any types of threats by the overbearing presence of the daily. Mm -hmm. And... It's set up so that it's it's a circle. The closer you get to the center of the circle, the, the richer and the richer the population is. Mm -hmm. And the actual city name means impenetrable city. And even so named, I think the physical setup has it so that if enemies ever did get through, they would have to kill and burn their way through the most disadvantaged, then to the middle class, then you get to the people who are the richest. Yeah. And so the physical setup of the city, not only just with its walls and like its blatant sectoring off in socioeconomic bracket, but even in terms of safety and and who is most vulnerable if an attack did happen. It's set up so that the poorest in the society are going to be hit the worst and hardest and first. Yeah, isn't a line that the Earth Kingdom says he's never even been to the outer wall? <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> like he's so confined mm -hmm. to the innermost ring. And and part of that is because of the machinations of the Dai Li, but mm -hmm. part of it's also just that he is an emblematic of those who are valued by the spatial environment of Ba Sing Se. Absolutely. I mean, and how many of our officials, even being elected officials, go to the lowest socioeconomic areas of, of our country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it is not unrealistic that, that that would happen. Totally. Here here in Los Angeles, one of our largest fallout shelters was located right underneath City Hall. And you can mm -hmm. still see signs for it on the streets of downtown Los Angeles of like fallout shelter. And the amount of people who can be in there is like 12,000 people or something. <laughs> That, that works for the population of Los Angeles. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or maybe yeah. of that 40-story building. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think the, the name Impenetrable City is also interesting because it can provide a sense of security for the populace, right? Because they're like, oh, we live in this impenetrable place, especially for, as these refugees are coming in, having been displaced from the war. And it also provides a sense of intimidation to the outside worlds to not even bother trying to attack, right? Mm -hmm. But I think 
it's also a true statement for the people who live there as well. Because if you live in the lower ring, the upper ring is impenetrable to you. Mm-hmm. And I think we even see that. Team Avatar arrives and they're just given this nice empty house in the upper ring. It's empty. Nobody's living there. And we totally see that in our worlds where there's these super nice luxury apartments that are just laying empty in the middle of housing crises. I I think it's very apt. (laughs) And I I think also it's, what, 70, 80 years later in Legend of Korra, Mm -hmm. and nothing about the socioeconomics of the city have really changed. Yeah, when Mako and Bolin accidentally go to the third quarter, Mm -hmm. the the third district, they're unable to get back without a pass. They are literally barred from entering unless they are approved to do so, which is exactly how the mobility of people in our society has been controlled and where people live has been controlled. Yeah, there's so many connections to real life, uh, which is one of the reasons I think that as much as I don't love Bossing Say because it's awful, <laughs> I appreciate that they spend enough time there that you can really see these dynamics at play. Absolutely. And so, yeah, I just think it's it's one of the most interesting places that they visit in the series. And yeah, so many parallels and I think really aptly named. Yeah. But should we move into our compelling questions? That sounds good. What do you have for me? So I was wondering what different kinds of class systems you see in Avatar. What different kinds of distinctions between the classes exist? We've talked a lot about economic class, for example, Mm -hmm. but what other kinds of hierarchies do you see? Yeah, so the first thing that comes to mind is with Zaheer and the Red Lotus trying to get rid of a ruling class. Mm -hmm. And it's, yes, money and positions of power completely go hand in hand but i think philosophically their group is against any type of centralized power regardless of how the people got there Mm -hmm. so yeah most of the people they're trying to dethrone or kick out of power are economically advantaged but i'm sure that that wouldn't always be the case Mm -hmm. but the fact that there can be this class of people who make the decisions for everyone else is one of the things that they saw as problematic we also see a i don't know exactly if i call it a spiritual class but you do have gurus or you have masters and I I think with airbending those things can intersect a lot Mm -hmm. in ways that maybe it it doesn't with earthbending or firebending or something but you do see that these people are given more respect and they're the ones who potentially are going to be sitting on councils they're the ones who are entrusted with imparting their knowledge to the next generation and yeah i mean obviously in tenzin's case the only person mm-hmm. who, who can do that i mean you you have military as well which always has a hierarchical structure yeah which obviously i'm never a fan of <laughs> uh those are the first ones that are coming to mind what else were you thinking about yeah i think that you hit on a lot of important ones i think that there's a certain amount of class differentiation based off of whether you can bend or not um Mm -hmm. more pronounced in some communities than others Mm -hmm. another one i thought was interesting was how ang claims to be from colonies as kuzon 
Mm. and how that kind of gives him some leniency in the way he acts, but it also makes it so that he is othered. And, you know, I think that kind of shows the national identity hierarchies that exist as well of who are really among us. And even if you are a Fire Nation colonist, someone who is doing the activity of settler colonialist imperialization of another area, coming back, you have lost something that makes you a higher class person. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's a really interesting element, which is something that we've seen historically in our society as well. And, and, and you brought this up too, is there's a lot of intersections between these, where the people who have the opportunity to do certain things tend to already have other advantages. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so in a military society, for example, or a military hierarchy, typically the people who move up the ranks are the ones who are most competent. But that quote-unquote competence (laughs) typically comes with who's got the better education, who had better connections, who was raised in this kind of system, you know, and who came in because they had no other economic opportunities because they were drafted, Mm -hmm. Um, who has been able to be in the command room long enough that they've learned this and not been on the front lines where they might have been killed or injured and, and not gotten access to it. But we see that in other ways with the masters that we see. If you are a master, maybe it's because as a bender, you're considered a valuable resource for a country at war. And so you didn't have to work for a living. You didn't have to be a laborer in other senses. You're allowed to develop your skills. Or maybe you're a sword master, but you have this giant home to you. So, you know, what economic ability did you have to be able to devote so much time to learning how to fight with a sword? You can destroy your own landscape just training someone and your servants will go fix it up for you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think these these are really interesting elements. Um, And in regards to the colonies aspect, typically people who go to be a colonist are often among the lowest rungs of the hierarchy in the society they are leaving. Because they, when they go to a colony, there's a new hierarchy developing there. And they're typically able to put themselves higher on that rung over those who they are colonizing, enslaving, genociding, etc. Mm-hmm. And so there are those kinds of implicit ideas of a, a, a colonist coming back. Even if you are the child of the head of a colony. Why did you and your family go out to that colony in the first place? What made you lower class in the society that you were leaving and that you're now coming back to? So yeah, I just, I think that it's interesting to see how these things actually do kind of correlate even in kind of subtle, implicit ways in the show where we see interesting aspects of class outside of Bossing Say when there's these really distinct upper, middle, and lower class distinctions. The rest of the world still has hierarchies, but they're much more fluid, but also more interconnected with all these networks of privilege. Mm. Yeah, that is interesting. Now I just, I want more time spent with with him as Kuzan. (laughs) I know, right? Yeah. That might be my favorite episode. It's so good. It is really great. (laughs) (laughs) This is my wife, Sapphire Fire. Fire. I'm Wang Fire. This is my wife, Sapphire. Hello, Sapphire Fire. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. A different one that now I'm kind of thinking about is among the Sun Warriors, and we don't get to Hmm. spend that much time there. And it seems like there is a hierarchy within their community, tribe, whatever you call it. But the kind of highest power in that social structure 
are the dragons themselves mm-hmm. are where firebending originated and we don't know that they can communicate with dragons in any specific way but yeah their society is structured around them yeah that is interesting yeah i have a lot of questions I'm also <laughs> you know you mentioned gurus and things earlier the air nomads had to have some sort of hierarchy they seem more egalitarian than most communities but you know why did monk gyatso have such a high level was it because he was born into it in a way was he shown that he had certain skills and knowledge that was valued how did he get those skills and knowledge did he have privileges that allowed him to do so all these are questions that we also don't see a lot of answers to and you got to see a few of the monks that seem like they were in charge ish mm-hmm. that Gyatso and um Aang threw those cakes at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, it seemed like they maybe were on the same level as Gyatso, but he definitely operated differently <laughs> than they did. Absolutely. Because yeah. obviously he didn't want Aang to be sent away, but they kind of overruled him on that. Mm-hmm. Well, what question did you have for me? So for my plotline, I kind of cheated because I was more talking. <laughs> Don't you nod your head in that disappointed way? It's less disappointed, more like that sounds like something you would do. No, shush. It's half my podcast. I can do what I want. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so it was less probably plot and more about world building, yeah, I think. Setting. Exactly. So my question is where do you see class and plot lines? actually intersect in the in the series mm. but i really wanted to talk about bossing site so i just did yeah i think that one element that speaks to me is zuko in book two mm-hmm. because having been even more banished from the fire nation he is living as a refugee essentially in the earth nation and i love that he basically went through a double banishment yeah right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that is really illustrative to him of what the world is like. Because even when he was just single banished, mm-hmm. he still had a ship at his command. He still yeah. had re- access to resources and military insight and a mission and was part of a hierarchy. And here he's at the lowest rungs of a hierarchy in many ways. And I think that that helps to show him how the Earth Kingdom hates the Fire Nation. And why he's able to, when he does defy his father, to say, we're not uplifting them. 